James Bible Study, Part 10, Worldliness, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. In the latter half of the third chapter, St. James spoke of two wisdoms. Lower wisdom is found in the ranks of the Christian's enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It may appear clever or cunning, but its ultimate aims are contrary to the will of God. Higher wisdom, which comes from God alone, is shown through the conduct and teaching of the wise man, who remains humble as one who has been blessed, rather than one who has earned his wisdom. Someone who supposes himself to be a teacher is going to be driven by either wisdom to the way he teaches and to the contents therein. Hence, St. James discussing these right after warning us that we must control our tongues. Nonetheless, St. James is no fool to suppose that only the divine wisdom will dwell in someone. To the contrary, he is well aware that we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. Lower wisdom arises from passions within the sinner, and thus we are warned in today's passage that following after them is an act of betrayal against God. In a word, St. James informs us that one cannot have a foot on both sides of the door, so to speak. Just as we cannot serve both God and mammon, we cannot be on God's side while also taking the world's side. Someone with motivations and desires following the world's ways, lower wisdom, demonstrates that they lack faith in the true God. Here, he provides the remedy. Verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Now, lower wisdom is predicated on jealousy and selfish ambition from James 3.16. The result of this is predictable, fighting between believers and factions within the church. Yet here, translated passions, 
St. James takes aim at hedonon, or pleasures, as the ultimate cause of these sinful motivations. The author is not condemning the existence of emotions within man. Listening to these emotions, or any other semi-Buddhist heretical concept. To the contrary, he condemns pleasure being sought for its own sake, or hedonism. Selfish ambition and jealousy are seeking the good feelings we receive when we receive or earn something. Money, status, attention, etc. The hedonist, putting the cart before the horse, desires the result of something good as a good in and of itself. Forgive the crass example, but people fornicate because they are seeking pleasure for its own sake. Properly speaking, the act of coitus between spouses is a union of man and wife, a celebration of their relationship, and it is a good thing which results in pleasurable sensations. The hedonist selfishly seeks these physical sensations as good in themselves rather than the reward of something good. Thus, he is willing to sin in order to receive it. To use a different example, and certainly a more family-friendly one, we may consider reputation. Having a positive reputation before others is a great feeling. Yet St. James would point out that this reputation should come from earning it through one's righteous conduct, dogmatic expertise, and charity. It should not be sought nor claimed for its own sake. The hedonist, through his selfish ambition, seeks the good reputation without seeing that it is a reward for being good. A believer must not be a hedonist. But our sinful nature inflicts us all. Thus St. James states that our passions or pleasures are at war within us even though we are regenerate. This is in agreement with St. Paul's formulation, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 7 verse 23. This is to say, though the believer understands the difference between right and wrong, and seeks to do right before God, our passions rise up and declare war on our new nature. Thus we are called to do battle against concupiscence or the desire to sin. Verses 2 and 3 say, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. These are the results of living by one's pleasures. We harm others, scheme to have what they want, break away from one another, and fail to pray. When we do pray, we are not asking in alignment with God's will. Typically, God does not grant the request of one seeking selfish gain or pleasure, if he does, such granting is almost certainly a form of discipline, as the individual praying sinfully for something will surely regret receiving it. Verses 4 and 5 say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The author here addresses adulterous people in his audience. These are people who are living according to lower wisdom rather than God's wisdom, being motivated by their pleasures into lives of jealousy and selfish ambition. He is not speaking about those who are struggling against their sinfulness, but rather directly addressing a particular group. The word employed is moikalides, literally adulteresses, and it uses what is called the vocative case, or a direct address. Speaking of adulteresses, St. James is connecting his words directly here with the prophetic utterances against Israel, wherein the prophets compared Israel's idolatry to literal harlotry. This explains the next clause very clearly. If someone lives according to their pleasures, they are idolaters, and are thus engaged in the same spiritual harlotry as ancient Israel and Judah, which makes them enemies of God. Where do idols come from? They come from the world, as St. John says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That is 1 John 2, verse 16. The world, or organized sinful humanity, is one of the three enemies of the Christian, the other two being the flesh and the devil. All three are also enemies of God. So to have phileo love for the world is to renounce loyalty to the true God and suffer his condemnation on account of it. St. James also says that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This is not a direct quote of any verse, but pointing to the themes present in the Old Testament which speak of God's jealousy. This would, of course, include Hosea and Ezekiel's condemnations of the Israelites' idolatrous harlotry. We worship a jealous God, per Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. He does not accept any competition for ownership of the believer. He will not share space on his throne for any worldly pursuit, idol, or fleshly desire. Regarding the spirit, which God has made to dwell in us, this is a reference to one of two things. Either the author is speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is offended when we sin, or he is speaking of the new creature, the saint born in baptism. If the former, then the sense of the text is that the relationship between persons of the Trinity is such that if one person is offended, the other two persons are as well. If the latter, then the sense of the text is that God loves the believer and wishes to claim them, hence the deep offense at sinful waywardness. Either way, both are technically valid understandings, given similar statements elsewhere in Scripture. Verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace is receiving freely the good which we do not deserve. In spite of God's fierce jealousy, he is still gracious to those who approach him with the request for mercy, 
sanctification, and divine wisdom. St. James, addressing the adulterous crowd of selfish people in his audience, reassures them that God is still gracious enough to them to forgive and restore should they be humble enough to come back to him in penitent faith. Emphasizing the humility necessary for this, St. James backs up his saying with the Septuagint version of Proverbs 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The term giving grace is an expression of a positive perspective on the person to whom one is being gracious. It is to be in a state wherein God looks favorably upon the believer. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If one submits himself to God, he will repent of his sin, turning away from and rejecting iniquity. He shall not cherish it, nor ignore it, but instead he will go to our Lord for forgiveness, discussed in the next two verses. The disposition of penitence and the act of repentance are connected with resisting the devil as well. By going back into God's fold, one is no longer an enemy of God through friendship with the world. This means that the believer is no longer under the power of the devil. However, that is a change in status, not necessarily an activity. We are not to say that turning away from one's sins means we have fulfilled what this verse would have us do. St. James is not saying, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Instead, he is commanding us, saying, resist the devil, he will flee from you. How does one resist the devil? By rejecting the lower wisdom and all that the devil would have us believe, resisting temptation, fleeing it if it is sexual in nature, per 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, and obeying God's commandments. There is also something to be said regarding this verse's use in matters of exorcism. To resist an opponent is to stand firm against them. In the face of demonic infestation, one must not run away nor be afraid, but rather rebuke the evil spirits in the name of Jesus Christ and command them to depart. While the primary application of this verse is in how we live our lives generally, it does teach that we have been granted the authority to stand against demons when we encounter them. Verses 8 and 9 say, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Verse 10 summarizes this, saying, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The author speaks of repentance and forgiveness here, when we are Made aware of our sins, we are to draw near to our Lord in penitent faith. If we go to him in this humility, he exalts us by forgiving our sins. St. James adds no acts of penance to the sacramental rite of confession and absolution. He merely tells us to go to God while mourning our sins, that we may be brought back into good standing before him. In not adding anything, St. James paints a picture of God's incomparable mercy on the sinner. 
Jesus Christ has already paid the price for our sins, so there is nothing to be done in order that we may merit this restoration. Regarding the emotions and acts of mourning which St. James speaks of, note the parallels between his words and Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 which say this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. To be wretched and weep and mourn is a result of the repentance shown in the heart. I do not put on sackcloth and ashes because that is required for penitence. I put on sackcloth and ashes because I am penitent first, going to our Lord for freely offered forgiveness. This is not the author demanding that we do these things in order to sufficiently repent. It is him saying that a heart which rejects former sins should be motivated to feel this way, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and conscience telling us we have done wrong. Let us not accuse St. James of commanding us to pretend. Now that said, emotions are not necessarily a yardstick by which we deem ourselves sufficiently penitent for forgiveness. One may process guilt in a variety of ways. More important than the emotional feeling of guilt is our recognition that we have done wrong, which in most cases will lead to such mourning, penitence, and freely accepting God's forgiveness. This passage is not necessarily a blueprint for emotional precursors to absolution. To the contrary, St. James is doing what every faithful preacher has since Pentecost, preaching law and gospel and pointing us to our merciful Lord who saves us freely.